0: welcome to the Illinois Agronomy Update. I'm your host, Troy Kazire, here at Hertz Farm Management in Geneseo. Uh, I'd like to welcome everybody back. I know we've been away for a while and uh, uh, we've, we've, kinda, we've changed the name and we've changed the look uh, uh, a little bit here, but our, our goal is still the same. We want to bring you timely and relevant uh, information on, on crop production here in the Central Corn Belt. So we're glad to be back and uh, excited to talk to our guest here for the first episode this season and uh, that is Nick Sider. Nick, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, so why don't, you, why don't you tell us, uh, give us your title and tell us a little bit about your role and, and kind of what it is you do.
1: Yeah, so I'm a research assistant professor at University of Illinois in the Department of Crop Sciences, and I'm a field crop entomologist with an extension specialist role. Uh, so my job really is to Ah, uh, do research on insect pest management in corn and soybean, and to translate that research into pest management recommendations for for farmers for crop advisors in Illinois, uh, primarily in corn and soybean. I'll work in 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 wheat or in forages on occasion as
0: well. Excellent. Well, again, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. And, and yeah, we brought you in today to kind of talk a little bit about uh, what's, what's happening uh, as far as, as uh, insect pests right now. In Illinois and really in the in the central corn belt and and uh so right now really the hot topic is is corn rootworm especially in northern Illinois and and there's pockets in other parts of the state but um that's really kind of reared its reared its ugly head again this year and in certain areas and so why don't you kind of give us an update where are we at with corn rootworm and and what are you seeing uh in the area?
1: Yeah so what we're seeing this year in in northern Illinois if you want to describe it in one world one word compared to the last few. It's just more. Uh, Just seeing higher populations, seeing more damage to to traded corn in particular, uh, and seeing it over a wider area, primarily in northern Illinois and really especially primarily north of I-80. That's not the only place we're seeing issues, but that's where a lot of our continuous corn ground is in Illinois, and that's where the majority of our problems have been occurring uh, these last few years. One, one thing that's been kind of interesting, you know, this year and, and the last couple of years is seeing more, not, not just Western corn rootworm, which has been our primary species for many years, but starting to see Northern corn rootworm in, in the system as well. We've seen quite high numbers in some cases of that insect this year and some pretty serious damage, uh, in parts of Northern Illinois, especially.
0: Yeah. Now, and, uh, some people might not realize the, you know, the weather in particular precipitation around the, the, you know, when those larvae start hatching, that can really impact populations. And, and that's kind of factored in a little bit to where we're seeing it this year, isn't
1: it? Yeah, that's correct. And so down where I am in East Central Illinois, uh, we had some real heavy soaking rains there in early June in particular. With, with corn rootworm, with both species, what they, they do, they overwinter as an egg. And those eggs begin hatching in late May on into early June. Now, if the soil is saturated, if it's soaking wet while that insect is an egg, that's, that's fine. It, it can take that. Um, But when you have these saturated or even flooded conditions while that egg is hatching and shortly after the egg is hatched, when you've got a a small larva, that small larva is quite vulnerable to those conditions. We saw a lot of that in East Central Illinois and in much of Central Illinois, uh, sort of south of I-80 this year. And that's part of the reason that we're seeing much smaller populations of beetles in that geography. Um, and the other part is, uh, again, just the volume of continuous corn in, in northern Illinois
0: versus central Illinois. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, and I know a lot of, some people might not remember uh, 2015, but the m- most of the state had just torrential rain in June that year. And that, that actually kind of wiped out the populations for the next, oh, th- two to three years really in the state. And, and it's really only now the last couple of years that we've uh, really started to see that resurgence.
1: Yeah, I, I've talked to a number of people who kind of referred to 2015 as a reset year uh, for the corn rootworm. And, and you get those conditions and then you combine them with, um, of course, w- widespread use of pyramided Bt traits. Uh, it's really kept our population down, way down compared to historical levels for several years. Uh, but now we're
0: starting to see that that rebound, um, particularly in northern Illinois. So you you mentioned you're seeing more uh, more damage in traded corn. So so corn that has the uh, the BT proteins, uh, the the insecticidal proteins that that we've relied on pretty heavily to to control those larvae. Um, but we are seeing more damage in, in traded corn. Why don't you why don't you talk about what you're seeing there?
1: Yeah, and so what we've really started to see over the last few years you know you can have these bt proteins available individually as they were for for several years when they were first introduced or you can have them in a in a pyramid where you have multiple proteins ideally with different modes of action that that target the same insect and we've seen resistance to those individual to those individual proteins for several years. In fact, the first example of resistance to to cry3BB1, the original protein that was introduced, occurred back in 2009. Um, And we had resistance to the individual proteins, to all of the individual proteins that are available in the system for several years uh, before we started seeing that damage to pyramided corn. Now we're starting to see that more as especially resistance to cry 34 35 which was the the herculex uh toxin um it was the the second toxin that was introduced as we've seen more resistance to that toxin out in these rootworm populations they've become more able to to overcome these pyramided trait packages
0: yeah they've you know almost all populations I think anymore have resistance to at least one. And then we've, we've seen cross resistance, right. With, with, uh, some, some, if they gain resistance to one protein and it's usually the cry three complex, I believe, if I remember right, uh, they generally have it to, to any other BT protein in that same family, correct?
1: Yeah, that that's exactly right. And we have, we have four BT proteins available to us, uh, three of them and that's cry three BB one, cry 3a which is the the Agrishur protein is what it was originally produced as agrissure rootworm um, and then e cry 3.1 ab which, which was introduced in the duracade uh pyramid those three proteins all have a similar enough mode of action that we see a high degree of cross
0: resistance among them sure sure um and you know when we talk about resistance you know, it's not just, um, BT. I mean, we've had resistance to insecticides for, for decades. Uh, now we've, you know, we have resistance to BT traits, but, um, we, we've also seen some, some instances where, where mother nature has found her way around, uh, crop rotation schemes. And that's the, the so-called variants uh, that we see, some of the, the extended diapause in northern Illinois and the soybean variant, sometimes in, in uh, east central Illinois and, and other places. Um, what are you? What what have you been seeing this year as far as those variants are concerned?
1: Well, sort of the the silver lining for us so far is that areas, especially in, you know in east central Illinois, central Illinois, where we have a high degree of crop rotation and where historically we've had tremendous problems with rotation-resistant western corn rootworm especially, we haven't really seen that yet. Um, We haven't seen those populations of western corn rootworms really moving into soybean in high numbers, and we haven't seen nearly the issues in first-year corn in terms of damage that we have in continuous corn. Uh, There's certainly been, been some instances of uh, damaged first year corn, damage to traded first year corn, but they've been relatively few and far between so far. Uh, that's something we worry may increase in the future, but right now rotation really is one of the, the best, if not the best tool that we have to help keep those overall populations down. Now, when you look at the two different species, you have two different mechanisms of overcoming crop rotation. Uh, with Western corn rootworm, They actually lay their eggs in soybean and other non-host crops, and then those eggs will hatch into corn the following year. That other species that we have, northern corn rootworm, they can also overcome crop rotation, uh, but that hasn't been through laying eggs in, in soybean fields. Their mechanism for overcoming it is through an extended diapause, where those eggs All corn rootworm eggs need to spend at least one winter in the soil. They need to experience at least one winter before they will hatch. Well, with with Western corn rootworm and with the wild type Northern corn rootworm, they all hatch in year one. Where we have rotation resistance in Northern corn rootworm, you have some eggs hatching in year one, you have some eggs hatching in year two, and then you have a, a smaller proportion of eggs hatching in year three or year four. It's sort of a sort of a bet hedging strategy by that insect um and in areas where you have high degrees of crop rotation you'll see northern corn rootworm populations that actually have a higher proportion of those individuals that hatch in years two and three and and four Um, but yeah the the one silver lining we've had so far is that our issues over the last few years in first year corn really been minimal um, and that's really throughout the
0: state, um, but especially in central Illinois. And that's, I actually just learned something. I, I didn't realize you had, uh, eggs that, that, that laid dormant that long. I, I knew, uh, I guess I thought all of them hatched in year two. I didn't realize it extended as far as four years. That's, uh, that's, that's interesting.
1: It, it's a relatively low percentage that goes to year four, but yeah, they, they have found them lying dormant for as many as four
0: years. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about management then what, you know, we've got a, um, say we've got a, a, a field that's been, you know, corn following corn for a while. And, and we're seeing those populations increase and we're seeing some damage in traded corn. Um, you know, let's, let's talk about management. What do you, what do you suggest?
1: Well, the first suggestion, if you can do it is to rotate, um, to, to break up that population, to break up that cycle of, just increasing resistance, you know, increasingly being able to overcome those BT traits. Uh, Rotation has to be a part of that equation. From a simple management standpoint, if you're going to go back into corn in that field, uh, you've got to think about an insecticide, whether that's an insecticide on on non-traded corn or, or traded corn, you know, the insecticides that we've used for a number of years remain fairly effective. But if you're starting to see failures with with your traits in an area and you've got continuous corn, uh, that problem is not going to improve. Uh, if you keep that field in corn, um, it, it's only going to get worse over time. Uh, it, in that situation, you're you're banking on the weather, you know, you're banking on some flooding event to come through and kill them and as we all know the weather is not not reliable in that in that sense huh. um and, and that's really that that's the tools that we have but rotation is going to be the most important
0: one there now what about adult beetle control i know you know sometimes we try to maybe if we're seeing a, a high population of adult beetles some guys will try a an aerial application of insecticide. Um, how, how effective is that? I think you you know you you, you really have to time that just right, and you got to get them at the right growth stage, and and uh, uh, you know it's tough to do. What are your what are your thoughts on adult beetle control? Yeah,
1: t- timing is everything on that. Um, it's certainly it's got a place. I think they use it a lot more effectively, or at least they use it a lot more often in places like Nebraska and Kansas where a lot of their continuous corn is is under irrigation. Um, The issue with adult control is always the the chance for those beetles to come back into the field, um, to to get out, to move around, especially if you're in an area like in central Illinois where you have a lot of field-to-field movement in in those rotation-resistant Populations, there, there is a place for it, and there's probably there will probably be more of a place for it as we continue to lose efficacy with the traits. You know, it, it's kind of we, we've been using these trait packages so long that they've become option number one, and everything else is, you know, sort of takes a backseat to that. Um, well, as those start to fall off, then then we start looking back at some of these other options. I would say in terms of a a population management, in terms of protecting corn in that field the following year, that's not going to be a substitute for, um, you know, whether it's an insecticide or rotation or something to, to protect those roots the following year, if you're in a high population situation. Um, But certainly managing the adult population becomes more appealing as we, Start to lose some of these other tools. Sure.
0: Uh, just one other thing on this, on corn rootworm is where, as we're talking about management, just uh, what, uh, is there, is there any data on, you know, we, we think about this, this wasn't so much an issue with Illinois, um, but you think about the storms they had in Iowa last year, knocking down just a, you know, a huge, uh, a huge swath of corn and, and uh, you, you look at, at some of those areas, the volunteer corn in, in soybean fields is, is really, uh, you know, it's just, just incredibly high this year. Uh, how does that impact, uh, you know, rootworm populations in those, in those fields when they go back to corn next year? How, how important is controlling volunteer corn uh, in, in rootworm management?
1: You know, we usually think of that as kind of an afterthought um, now, it, like you mentioned, this year we, we've had a little more volunteer corn, I think, than we're used to, to seeing in a lot of these fields. And if you, if you get enough of that out there to where it becomes much like a cornfield, um, especially if you have that out there still and it's, uh, and it's tasseling and it's silking and it's drawing in beetles, it can be a factor. I think that would be w- what I would really recommend to people if they, if they have a field like that is to go out there and take a look at it and, and see what kind of a beetle population you're bringing in, get a feel for what those beetle populations are like in there. Because what what you find with, with Western corn rootworm in particular is that if they're feeding in that field, they're, they're laying eggs in that field as well. Typically Northern corn rootworm, it's a little more complicated. They'll go around and feed on a lot of different plants, um, including soybean without necessarily laying their eggs in those fields but when you have western corn rootworm out there and they're feeding um they are also
0: laying their eggs all right well let's uh let's spend just a few minutes on a couple other insects here i know that's kind of the the big issue in illinois right now but um as we get further south uh fall armyworm uh can be can be a problem and and uh uh, I think we're seeing some of that in southern Illinois right now, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we, we are seeing some of that in, in southern Illinois right now. And you, you have a few things going on to our south with that. So fall armyworms are a migratory pest. They, they don't overwinter in Illinois. And most years they get here so late that we might see some problems in grass pasture. Uh, we might see some problems in like some very late planted uh, double crop soybeans down there, some alfalfa perhaps, Uh, but often the problems we see from fall armyworm, they occur late in the season and they're relatively minor. Well, like the the states who are south have seen this year, we're we're starting to see some fairly large fall armyworm populations a little bit earlier um, than we're used to seeing them and it's a, a larger population than we're used to seeing as well. And so the earlier they arrive in the area, you you know, you think about that, the more of the the soybean fields, especially um, that are there are still in kind of a a vulnerable state. You know, they really like to feed on those soybean leaves where there's still some vegetative growth going on, where they're young and uh, tender. Um, The other thing we have going on that we don't have a great feel for yet in Illinois, and it's a, a reason we'd like people to be Vigilant about this insect this year. To our south, we we've had some control failures with pyrethroid insecticides in, like Arkansas and, and Tennessee in particular. And historically, there there's two different strains of fall armyworm. There's one that comes in and, and feeds on on corn and grain sorghum, and that one's always been very difficult to control. Anyway, it gets into the corn ears. You know, you can't really get to it there. Um, but the strain that feeds on, on soybean and on wheat and grasses historically has been quite easy to, to control. That's been one of the, um, I guess the, the bright sides of controlling fall armyworm is that you could go in and basically melt them, uh, with, uh, with a pyrethroid insecticide application. That hasn't been the case in the Southern U S this year, they've had some control failures. And so we do want to caution farmers in that part of illinois that if they get into a situation where they need to treat for fall army worm that they might find that the control they're getting is less satisfactory than it's been in the past and i would really encourage them uh to to follow up on any applications that they have to make and and make sure that that whatever they used uh they they get the efficacy that they need um but that's been a kind of a surprise to some people, I think, and um, certainly it, it caught them off guard a little bit to our south, and we're, we're at an advantage in Illinois in that these migratory pests, we get them sort of after a, a lot of other people have already experienced them, so hopefully we can, um, you know, heed those warnings from the southern U.S. and, and be on the lookout for them ourselves.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's 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 pretty much a pest you have to react to, right? Like you said, they're migratory, so so you know, corn or excuse me, crop rotation things like that, aren't really going to help. Um, so what if, if pyrethroids aren't aren't doing the job? What what other uh, classes of insecticide do we have that that can uh, that can still provide control?
1: Yeah, uh, depending on the, the crop that you're in, you can get control with several of the organophosphate insecticides. And then also the diamides, and those have become really, I, I would say, the most effective um, of the, the group of chemicals that you might consider using on fall armyworm. The diamides and also some, some insect uh, growth regulator materials as well, uh, they do tend to be a little more on the expensive side. Um, and so there can be a little bit of sticker shock when you're used to, you know, spending $1.50 an acre for a pyrethroid insecticide or something like that. Uh, to, to jump up to maybe 10 or $12 an acre for one of these other insecticides is a tough pill to swallow. Sure, sure.
0: And so speaking of migratory pests, we didn't, you know, we we talked briefly before we started recording here. And, and this didn't come up, but it just, uh, it just thought of, or I just thought of this. Um I have not heard, I have not seen or nor heard much about corn earworm this year. That's another migratory pest we see from time to time. If the, if the weather patterns are right, you know, pushing them up from, uh, from, from the, you know, storm systems out of the Gulf. Has there, has there been much earworm to speak of this year?
1: So there's been, um, there's been some earworms flying through for sure. And we've had some spots that got high populations in sweet corn, for instance, the the other thing, in addition to the weather patterns that'll keep populations low, is early planting. And, and mm-hmm. that's one thing with, with field corn in particular. You know, most of our corn got in on time this year, got in even a little bit early in a lot of cases this year. And, and that's one of the best things you can do as a, as a corn grower to prevent damage from migratory pests like corn earworm. They, they really like to lay their eggs on those silks, um, like during or shortly before or shortly after pollination. That, that's when they really want to be in those cornfields laying their eggs. And so if they arrive here and you're sitting at R3, R4, you've got brown silks out there. Um, that field all of a sudden is, is much less attractive for them. Corn earworms an interesting insect. You know, it, depending on where you're at, you might call it the cotton bollworm, You might call it the soybean podworm, the tomato fruitworm. They they feed on a wide variety of different plants, and if the corn, while corn is, you know, in most situations the preferred host, uh, if something else is at a more susceptible growth stage nearby, they're they're more than happy to bypass corn and lay their eggs in tomatoes or um,
0: any number of things. Sure, yeah, I appreciate. I had not heard much, and I and uh, just I kind of wondered what the what the situation was with with earworm. Um, so to wrap things up, let's talk a little bit about uh, an insect that we really we haven't had to deal with, uh, fortunately, here in Illinois, but our, our counterparts uh, to the west of the Mississippi, um, and the further west you go, the worse it is, uh, have had to deal with soybean gall midge. And, and um, a lot of folks listening might not be familiar with this one. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this and, and kind of what the status is right now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is an insect, what we're really pushing with this one is is recognition. We, we want people to know that, that it exists, that it's a, a problem in soybean. Um, and we want people to be on the lookout for it here in Illinois. If it does arrive here, as we're hoping, of course, that it doesn't, but if it does arrive here, we want to know when it arrives. And what you find with this insect pest Uh, The first symptom that you're likely to to notice on on the plant uh, is really kind of a a premature dieback of plants, especially along the edge of the field, um, along edges of fields that are bordering last year's soybean fields, really resembles like an SDS or another one of these uh, plant diseases that that will cause that plant to die prematurely. If you peel back the, the skin of the stem on these plants, and particularly towards ground level, you will find these little fly larvae, these little maggots, uh, down underneath the the skin of the plant. And they'll be, if they're older uh, larvae, they'll be a bright orange and they'll be curled up. I've heard my colleagues refer to them as orange slices because of the the color and the shape. And, And typically you're going to find dozens of these. What, what's really unique about this situation, th- this is an insect pest that they found in, in eastern Nebraska, um, and it's been really a problem in, in eastern Nebraska and western Iowa. They have found it through quite a bit of the, the western third or quarter or so of Iowa. Um, they found it as close as western Missouri, so it's not not been confirmed terribly close to Illinois yet. But when they first found this insect it was actually something that was new to science. They they had to actually go through and describe the species which almost never happens. Like e- even when we get an invasive species that's a pest of a major commodity like soybean, we almost always know what it is and and usually it's a minor pest somewhere else in the somewhere else in the world and it becomes a major pest when it gets to a new place and is released from its natural enemies and all that. We don't really know what the situation is with this insect. We don't know if it's a native insect that had a host switch where all of a sudden it could feed on soybean or if this was imported from somewhere in the world where it was such a minor pest that people didn't actually know it existed. Uh, but definitely something, again, we've looked for it in Illinois for a couple of years now and, and not been able to find it. And we're, we're thankful for that fact. Uh, we hope to continue to not be able to find it, but certainly something if, if you're listening to this and you, you find something that looks like it could be a soybean gall midge, uh, by all means, get in touch. You, you can get in touch with me or you can get in touch with a local extension or USDA office or, or somebody and, and report that and, and get it investigated so that we can um, really determine if this thing does arrive
0: here uh, we want to be ready for it. Yeah, it really has been a fascinating story to see, you know, like you said, just the, just see this thing kind of come out of nowhere and they really are very unique. Like you said, bright orange larva. I mean, uh, there's really not much else that can be mistaken for it. Um, and so definitely if you see that, um, you know, contact your local agronomist contact extension, uh, let somebody know, uh, cause we want to, we want to make sure that if that shows up on this side of the Mississippi, we, uh, uh, somebody knows about it and we can we can kind of put a plan in action and and uh, uh make sure we keep track of it so well nick i appreciate the, all the information anything else that uh, that's on your mind or that, that that's happening right now in the area
1: um you know i think that really covers the um the big things. something if you're growing soybeans right now um and you're wondering what to scout for Uh, we're getting pretty close to the time to scout for late season pod feeding insects like stink bugs and, and bean leaf beetles, uh, scarring the pods. Um, that, that's kind of the, the last in, in corn and soybean, the last pest management task of the year is to go out and look for those things. But we're, we're getting pretty close to the end of this season, um, believe it or not.
0: Yeah, things are turning fast and, and, uh. Yeah, fortunately a lot of these things like you said have come on late enough that that they haven't been a problem but we need to we need to keep an eye out that's for sure. And and Nick, I think what we'll do is we'll probably bring you back next spring. Uh, you know, we kind of wanted to focus on, on what's important, uh, out in the field right now, but, uh, we'd like to bring you back at some point and kind of do just a basic, you know, sort of a, a corn and soybean insect one-on-one episode and, and just talk a little bit about the, the key insects in the area and, and basic management and what to look for. And, and, uh, I think that'd be an interesting episode if we can have you back in the spring.
1: Oh, that sounds great. I sure
0: appreciate it. And, um, yeah, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you again. And I want to thank everybody for listening and uh, appreciate, again, those of you sticking with us. And and, uh, we look forward to to, to future episodes and uh, we'll see you the next time on the Illinois Agronomy Update. Thank you.